0: Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, uncorrupted, and unfading. Therefore, get your minds ready for action, being self-disciplined, and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God is spirit and must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. You need to take a moment to establish our base, which is Jesus Christ, Make sure we are humbled before the authority of truth, filled with the Holy Spirit, that we may discern spiritual truth. Let's pray. Almighty Father, I thank you tonight for your faithfulness. I thank you, Father, for the conviction to uh, do this study. I thank you for the time that was spent in preparation, the uh, 18 months of time, really, uh, spending it with... Uh, uh, with Kevin and Sensha and going over these, uh, these uh, doctrines and seeing the blessing that poured forth from that. And Father, I thank you that uh, you have, uh, through your spirit, put together this uh, nine-week course that we may uh, look at these uh, foundational truths and uh, get uh, grounding for some of us in these truths for the first time and for others of us to re- be uh, reconfirmed in them, to uh, uh, check our foundation and make sure that it is still secure, that uh, we don't have any cracks or any termites or things that would uh, cause damage to our Christian walk. But Father, uh, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work in this uh, time that we have to uh, make these things evident to us, to make the importance of them evident to us, to convict us uh, of our need to uh, examine and re-examine these things every opportunity we get. So, Father, uh, we ask you to set aside this time, uh, sanctify our thinking, and uh, uh, be with us as we uh, seek to glorify Jesus Christ in our uh, knowledge and our understanding and our application. I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. That's the first time that's ever happened. guess I should. All right. At least it wasn't some crazy song. My phone dinged at me. Just ding. All right. Um, This is going to be the first of nine lessons in basic doctrinal studies. Now, I do have a title for this, and it's kind of a working title because I I want to write a book based on this study. Um, So, we're doing an introduction tonight, and we're going to go over the uh, agenda for the entire study. And. uh, And we will be able to move forward from there, uh, examining each area. So, just a second here. All right. A biblical foundation for the Christian life is what I think I will title my book. And uh, I did not print out notes for you tonight, but I will uh, supply them with you in the future. Um and I'll probably even have some of them uh, after the class so that you can uh, see the uh, outline of each lesson. And uh, that'll, be your, that'll be your first set of notes for the entire class because that won't change. That's going to kind of be the table of contents that we work from, and then we'll add to that as, uh, progressive, through the progressive classes. So what's the, uh, what's the need of a basic doctrinal studies class? Well, automatically you're going to think of new believers. Believers that need to be grounded in the truth. um, Believers that need to understand that they can trust the Word of God and that they are going to use the Word of God to, um, to live the Christian life. But that's not the only need for a basic doctrinal studies course. Because one of the primary needs, I think, beyond just the new believers that need to be grounded in these things are the older believers that are going to teach them? How many Christians are actually going to or should be teachers? This is, this is a kind of a discussion time. You're, you're allowed to answer. How many believers should actually become teachers? Thank you. Yeah. So you guys know everything. I can go home now. <laughs> All right. Yes. And those older believers, do we have a verse that we might uh, cite for that? What? Hebrews Hebrews what? I think Fassel said it. By now, because of the time, you should be teachers. That's a good verse in chapter 5 of of the book of Hebrews. Yeah. So, the other thing is that within the local church in the New Testament, there are usually many teachers. One of the uh, most blessed churches in the New Testament is the church of Antioch. They were full of teachers. So, the other thing I would look at is Titus chapter 2, and of course this is going to be for the mostly for the older believers to convince them of the necessity, and you guys, I don't really need to convince. Titus chapter 2 discusses the elders, those older believers that are doing what? They're coming alongside the younger ones. So there is a great importance for these basic doctrinal studies to be reviewed by older believers, or maturing believers as I like to say. Um, because none of us reach full maturity in this life. We're all maturing believers. Some of us have just advanced a little bit further on the path. For maturing believers, we need to review all of these things and be prepared to teach them to the younger believers to come alongside. So, So the goal of this study is to introduce the Bible and its teaching in a manner that lays the foundation in three ways. It prepares the new believer for a life of Study and application. Of study and application. One of the things we look at, as far as this is concerned, is what we call the Great Commission. That we are to make disciples of all nations. And making a disciple is not an ongoing process. We don't uh, pick up a younger believer and start making them a disciple, and two years later, we're making them a disciple. A disciple is a learner, someone who is committed to studying, to learning something. So in order to make someone a disciple, what do you have to teach them? How to learn so that they can live a life of learning. So a disciple is a learner. The Christian life is a life that must be learned. Are you hearing Pastor Bob? Any of you have been here for a while? Are you hearing Pastor Bob? Well, that's my foundation, Okay. A, a Christian, The Christian life is a life that must be learned. Okay? A Christian doesn't come out of the, the spiritual womb, so to speak, a mature believer and ready to face whatever God has for them. They need to be grounded in the truth. They need to be grounded in a solid hermeneutic so that they are able to study the Word of God for themselves, take it in, and be able to apply it. They need a pastor-teacher over their souls, of course. Someone that... Um, has had their soul allotted to their charge in order to guide that spiritual life, in order to guide that growth. But they themselves ought to be established in their own relationship with the Word of God. And as we talked about this afternoon, the Word of God is living and written. It's Jesus Christ himself and our written mind of Christ in the Bible. The third thing for the new believer is learning involves theory and practice. Now, don't get me wrong when I say that, because the Bible isn't theory, it's true. But that phrase involves, we hear, the, the theoretical knowledge. That's knowledge that we have that has not been tested for us. Okay, We have a bunch of information, but we need to live it, to practice it, to know its truth. Okay, Then it becomes practical for us, not just theoretical information. This is a problem with many believers in the Christian life, is that Particularly in our circles, they tend to only be attracted to the theoretical. They tend to sit in Bible class, take in information, and they're done. That's their Christian life, the extent of their Christian life. And that's only the first part of where we need to go with this. We need that information, absolutely. But we have to go out and live it in order for it to mean something to us, in order for it to be useful to us. The second point So, first point, prepares the new believer for a life of study and application. Secondly, it prepares the new believer for further study in systematic theology. Yes, we are here to learn and to grow. And in order to learn and grow, we need to be challenged. That means, throughout this study, we're going to be using terms that we'll also see in uh, things like systematic theology. We'll be using larger words that we'll see on a regular basis and things like Chafer's Systematic Theology, Geisler's Systematic Theology, Um, will be challenged on all of these things so that we're prepared with a vocabulary to enter into those as well. Because the word basic, the foundation, is not the end of, of the building process, right? Then you have to get the structure on top of that. So if we're building the solid foundation with an understanding for us to build up on it as well, then we're going to need to challenge ourselves throughout the foundation process. So the use of common theological terms is going to be a part of this study. It'll pave the way for more advanced studies. The third goal is equipping maturing believers to make disciples. And this was already in my notes, I promise, before I had this uh, um, conversation with Gene, and we kind of had some fellowship over um, martial arts, Stories and terms and things. Uh, Advanced techniques are the basics mastered. Um, One of the things that we talked about, as uh, he told uh, his story during the classes, I come up to him and said, you know, there's an interesting saying from Bruce Lee. It's kind of similar to what what you were talking about. Um, Bruce Lee says, I'm not afraid of the man who has practiced 10,000 kicks once. I'm afraid of the man who has practiced one kick 10,000 times. And then he told us an even better story about uh, two ancient masters, and we can get into that after class, but of course his story demolished mine. It was so cool. Uh, But it illustrated the same point. Um, As we go through this, we're going to find that... All of these things are going to stay with us throughout our Christian lives. We're not going to be done with these topics. We're not going to be done with these doctrines. We're going to live in them and dwell in them for the rest of our Christian lives. We're just laying the foundation here today and throughout this nine-week course. Advanced techniques are the basics, Master. That means we're going to learn throughout this study, when we talk about theology, the study of God, we're going to learn that God is one, but God is also three, right? God is Trinity. We can't learn all there is to learn about Trinity in this life, let alone in one hour that we're going to take to study theology and maybe 15 minutes to talk about the Trinity. The Trinity is something you will ponder over for the rest of your life because it's one of the deepest and hardest to grasp doctrines that we have in the scriptures. when we talk about soteriology, salvation doctrines. We're not going to be done with those when we finish up figuring out that Jesus died on the cross. We're going to ponder the cross and what happened there for the rest, and we ought to, for the rest of our lives. Because there are things that happen that we cannot understand in this life, but we will seek to, to understand them through the scriptures. Now, part of the uh, issue that we're going to have here In beginning this study is that where are we going to find all of our information where is everything that we're going to study come from the shelves at Lifeway no every bit of it has to come from here otherwise it's my own ideas your own ideas every bit of it has to come from God so that presents a problem in a lot of new believers' lives, and not just at the beginning of their Christian life, but during that first phase of growth, we'll, we'll get to First uh, John chapter two, verses twelve through fourteen, and talk about the different levels of maturity there. But there's a newborn believer, and then there's a growing child, just like in Bios' life. A child is born, and that child begins to grow and age, and it knows more at, at five or six years old than it did when it was an infant. But the problem is at five or six years old, that, that child is still very impressionable, right? It can be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, right? So to speak. So, the problem in my thinking is a lack of a solid trust in this. Because they're going to get attacked from every avenue they're going to be told that book is not trustworthy that book is filled with lies that book is filled with mythology and silly stories for 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 children so in my thinking the grounding in bibliology the study of the bible has to come first before we talk about really any of those other topics because if you don't have a solid hermeneutic if you don't know that you can trust the Bible and why, we're going to answer the question in the first bibliology class, why do I choose to believe the Bible? If we can't answer that question properly, if we can't trust the Bible and be able to defend the Bible even in our own, in our own thinking when those attacks come, to say, no, that's not right, and I know that's not right, and here's why, not just I, I don't think that's right because God wrote the Bible, yeah, that's true. But we can have more ammunition stocked up for such an occasion. So we're going to spend two hours on bibliology. And we're going to spend one hour on everything else, on each of the other topics. Let's turn to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. Did somebody just say, Where is that? Okay. 1 John chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 12 through 14. I am writing to you, little children, everybody there? I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven for his namesake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Did we find it? Okay. So, little children and children... Okay, those two are mentioned. Little children and children. Here's the distinction. Born ones, newborn babies, and growing children. So we've got the, the newborn baby and maybe a six or seven year old child. Okay, Newborns and growing children. Then we have young men, the adolescents. Okay, And then we have the fathers, the mature. So the children in this idea... Both the born ones and the growing children need to have a foundation laid for a secure and stable life, so that they're not tossed to and fro by every wind of, of doctrine, so that they're not—they don't have their faith destroyed when somebody comes along and lays on them something about the Greek text of the Textus Receptus, something ridiculous. For somebody who already has that information, but to somebody who doesn't, they're blown away, and this person's really well-versed, this person's really intelligent, they seem to know what they're talking about, maybe I'm wrong about this. But if we have this from the beginning, if we have this grounding from the beginning, this information, this understanding about the veracity, the trustworthiness of the Bible, then we're not going to be affected in our faith by such things. The young men in this passage, they need to maintain humility and find their strength in the foundation of the Word of God the fathers in this passage they are realizing the goal of the foundation knowing Jesus Christ which is going to bring us into our next topic of theology okay theology is more than just knowing about God theology is more than just knowing facts about God or knowing what God did the end goal of theology the end goal of of all of this, is those fathers, what those fathers are realizing, knowing Jesus Christ. Now this kind of knowing that is talked about in this passage is the kind of knowing that happened back here in the past. Okay, They came to know Him at some point. They came into deep fellowship and knowing Him personally. And they continue growing in that fellowship, that knowledge of Him. So, If I were to say, Chris, I know you, what does that actually mean? How much time have you and I spent together? Not much. So we know of each other. We have somewhat of an acquaintance. But we don't know each other, say, the way that Bradley and I do, or the way that Pastor Bob and I do. But we do have a foundational acquaintance, that we can build on, right? Okay. You have a foundational acquaintance that you can build on. You're God's son. You came into the family of God. were born into the family of God. Now you have a foundational acquaintance that you can build on and come to know your father. What does it say about those children? Go back to the passage. The born ones, the newborn babes, the little children, they know that they're Sins have been forgiven for his name's sake. That's the first thing they found out. That they had their sins forgiven because of Jesus, because of his work on the cross. Now, what does it say about the children? I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. Okay? Now, that's not the same as the fathers, right? Who do the fathers know? The one who is from the beginning. And John identifies that as the person of Jesus Christ. In the beginning of the book, he identifies the one from the beginning as the person of Jesus Christ. So the growing children know that they have a father now. So what happens with the baby? The baby doesn't know anything. The newborn babe, the bios, the the living child, doesn't know anything. It comes into the world and it can't even speak. Maybe it knows the face of its mother the first time it sees its mother. And that, that foundation is built upon. And there are, there's a choice of two words usually that a baby utters the first time. What are those two words? Yeah, mama or daddy. So when the baby starts to grow begins to be able to talk, then it knows that's mama, that's dada. When we get past that newborn stage and we become growing children, we know the father. We know we are a child, and that's the father. That means we're... The the word here is paideia. The word in Greek means a child under training. Okay? So a child under training already has some knowledge that it can build upon. These children under training know that they have a father. Okay? So the children need to have a foundation laid for a secure and stable Christian life. The young men who need to maintain humility and find their strength in the foundation of the Word of God. Let's look at them. Young men are mentioned twice here. Young men, because, he's writing to them, because the young men have overcome the evil one. Moreover, he says at the end of of verse 14, I have written to you, young men, because you are strong. Now, why are they strong now? They had some victory over the evil one in the first part of it, but why are they strong now? Because the Word of God, it says, abides in you. The Word of God, the Bible, the mind of Christ, has become more to them than just a book that somebody reads from on a Sunday morning. Okay? The Word of God has become the foundation of everything that they do, everything that they are in the Christian life. They are strong because the Word of God... Is now living in them. It's abiding in them. Okay? It's circulating in them. It's hidden in their heart. The word of God abides in you, and you have overcome. You have overcome the evil one. Okay? But because of that, a young man, because of that, an adolescent can begin to become prideful. Man, I know the word of God. I know. I know a lot about the Word. I know a lot about the Bible. And I'm having victory left and right over the evil one. I'm pretty special. I'm pretty awesome. You see the problem? The arrogance that comes from that? That arrogance, God is very good at shooting down in the adolescent believer. But he can avoid it, or she can avoid it, by continuing to review these doctrines and recognize there are so many things I don't understand about this yet. Because we won't come to a full knowledge of any of these things in this lifetime. We will come to enough of a knowledge to be strong and have the word of God abide in us. We will come to have enough wisdom, which is the knowledge applied, enough wisdom to have come to know the one who is from the beginning, Jesus Christ. But we need to maintain that humility throughout that adolescent process into maturity. The fathers are realizing the goal of the foundation, knowing Jesus Christ. It's said the same way both times. I am writing to you, fathers, because you have come to know, and still know, the one who is from the beginning, who is Jesus Christ. All right. So we have nine lessons that we're going to look at. This is the first of, of them. In theology, in theology books, books that we'll look at, the word that we would use for this introduction is the prolegomena, the word before. The words that we say before everything else. The words that we say to be, to be a foundation for everything else that comes afterwards so that we're prepared for all the stuff we're going to study. Okay? So that's what an introduction is, is a prolegomena. Lesson two and three will be the Bible we're going to spend 2 hours or 2 lessons studying the bible and how to study the bible we will look at it first from an apologetic standpoint what does that mean that greek it comes from a greek word that means to give an answer to give an account okay so apologetics that word is usually used in the christian in a christian circle as Answering arguments from skeptics, answering ar- uh, arguments from Bible haters, answering arguments from folks who would come to you and say, the Bible is nonsense, why do you trust in that silly old book? Okay? So we're going to start there. We're going to start by answering the question, why do we choose to believe the Bible? Why is the Bible uh, believable? Why is the Bible trustworthy? That's the foundation for our study and what will follow in Bibliology, we'll study the structure and division of the Bible. Okay? That means we'll study why we have something called an Old Testament, why we have something called a New Testament. We'll have a, a basic Bible overview is what that's going to be. Okay? We're going to study inspiration and revelation. Why do we say that the Bible is inspired by God? Partly because the Bible says it's inspired by God. Partly because it says that God breathed out the words of Scripture. That men of old, prophets of old, men of God, were led by the Holy Spirit. And this is a really cool concept that I'm sorry you'll, you won't be uh, here to, to, to uh, be a part of because that we didn't get to finish that conversation earlier this afternoon. Because the Bible is 100% human and 100% divine. Now, Is there anything else we can say the same thing of? Jesus Christ. Okay? So, that'll speak to the whole room. Um, There are more things than just Hebrews chapter 4 that are going to tell us that the Bible and the Word of God written and the Word of God living need to go together. We need to think of them together. Okay? So, the inspiration and revelation what does revelation mean? Revelation comes from a word that means to be revealed, to be manifested, to be shown. Okay? So, what is revelation? How is the Bible revealed? Is it revealed all at once or has it been revealed in parts throughout a span of time? All of those things that we're going we're to look at. Canonization. This is a big word to say how the books of the Bible were chosen. And this is one of the arguments that I hear all the time and I think, man, if you just read more than one book, one book, because the only book you read was by a Bible skeptic. People didn't choose the books of the Bible 300 years after Jesus Christ walked the earth. Okay? The books of the Bible, many of them were chosen before Jesus Christ even walked the earth. Okay? So, canonization will tell us in several different ways why we have 66 books in our Bible why we think those 66 books belong in our Bible, why it's not 65 or 67, why those particular books are trustworthy. We're going to talk about transmission and translation. Does anybody remember the uh, debate between Bill Nye and Ken Ham? In that debate, Bill Nye kept saying something, and Ken Ham had no receipt, He just ignored it. Bill Nye kept talking about, he kept saying, why do you trust a 3,000-year-old book that's been translated so many times you can't possibly know what it originally said? Ken Ham, did, it was like it went in, one ear out the other. Like He didn't even hear it, he didn't respond to it, he didn't address it. And that's a childish argument, an ignorant argument about the Bible, okay? about how we got our English Bibles of today. Because one of the foundational things that we'll learn is the Bible was written in particular languages. And it wasn't translated 14, 15 times before we finally get an English Bible from language to language to language. Every time we translate into a new language, or even a new translation of a language that's already got a hundred and some translations like the English, there's probably over a hundred English translations of the Bible... Every time we do that, we go back to the original language it was written in and translate that language. Okay? But he never addressed it. And to me, I thought, oh, you just a couple of words and you could have destroyed that argument right there. You have no idea what you're talking about. Here's how, here's how translation works. And lastly, in that first lesson, we'll talk about inerrancy. Why do we say the Bible is without error? And what specifically, there's a caveat, do we mean by that? The Bible is without error in the original writings. Okay? That's one of the arguments that will be used against a new believer to say, you say the Bible is without error, look, I can show you a bunch of them. Okay. But I have five six thousand manuscripts to compare those errors and find out which ones are errors and which ones are not. Okay. That's one of the things that we'll go over in transmission and translation and inerrancy. Okay. So, why the Bible is trustworthy, how we got it, um, what the Bible is all about, how it's structured, how it's divided into two different parts, how those two different parts have so many books and why those books are chosen, why those books are in our Bibles. The third lesson is going to be dedicated completely to hermeneutics. Hermeneutics. That means, basically, how to study the Bible. That means all of us are called to read the Bible for ourselves, to study the Bible for ourselves, not to have an intermediary, in other words, not to just look at our pastor and say, you studied the Bible and tell me what it says. And this year has been difficult in many ways for me because I've run into folks who have experienced that very thing. The pastors have told them, you don't need to study the Bible. You don't even need to read it. Just come to Bible class. I'll tell you what it says. So who are you establishing believers in a relationship with? The Word or yourself? The answer to that question is they're establishing Believers in a relationship with themselves. Because those believers need the pastor to know the word of God at all. Where God has called each one of us and given each one of us the freedom, particularly in the United States of America, to know our Bibles for ourselves. Part of hermeneutics also, there's a verse in the Bible that says, that teaches us a principle of searching the scriptures daily to see if these things are so. And this principle is given in the context of people who heard the teaching of the Apostle Paul. And that's fascinating. They didn't just trust, this this is the Apostle Paul, he knows what he's talking about, we should just listen to him, Why, why would we even argue with it? No, because it's still a flawed man who can make mistakes. And I can stand up here, Pastor Bob can stand up here, any man, any person can stand up here and to make a mistake in our understanding, as Pastor Bob has said in the past, and I'm finding out that it's true for me as well, I make mistakes all the time. I get things wrong all the time. But I keep studying. And I want you to have that foundation to be able to say, I'm going to go home and study this. This is really interesting. I want to find out if the Bible really does teach this. But how do you do that without a understanding of how to study the Bible for yourselves. We're going to spend a whole hour talking about Bible study method, about how we approach the Scriptures, about a literal hermeneutic and what that means, okay? about when we look at a passage, we're going to look for the plain sense. We're not going to look to make it mean whatever we want it to mean. We're not going to look at a passage and try to twist it to mean what we want it to mean. We're going to look to see what do the original authors intend when they wrote this, okay? Following our study of the Bible, those two lessons on bibliology, we will begin a study, a one-hour study on theology. A study on theology, the word theology is a general term, can be used as a general term, an umbrella term over all of these particular areas. Okay, so when we use words like systematic theology, a title for many books of that subject, we're looking at um, the teaching of Scripture in a systematic way, okay, in categories, in a systematic way. So the word theology can be used as an umbrella term for all of these things, whether we're talking about bibliology or soteriology or homardiology, we'll talk about that in a minute. All of these ologies are covered under the umbrella term of theology. Okay? But theology has a specific usage as well. The- theos is the Greek word for God. Okay? So the specific meaning of this is that we're studying God. Okay? It's a study of God. As I said in the beginning, a study of God is not designed to know facts about somebody. The study of God is designed to know the person of God. Because our goal in the Christian life, going back to 1 John 2, is to have come to know the one who is from the beginning. Okay? So the first thing that we will cover before we look at Trinity and personality and essence and anything else is a foundation that we need to know the person and work of Jesus Christ, not just facts about God. We need to know the person of the Father, not just facts about His plan. We need to know the person of the Holy Spirit, not just facts about what he does in the Christian life. When we look at Trinity, we're looking at the, um, the doctrine, the understanding that God is revealed as being one, but he's also revealed as being three. Okay? Three in one. We have the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each one of these is equally God. Each one of these is a person as well. This is not a manifestation of one God. Like he chooses to manifest himself as the Son sometimes and sometimes as the Father. God is God. There is one God. But that one God has three persons. You see why this is the hardest doctrine to grasp? How does one God have three persons? And we have a a hard time grasping that because we're one person. We're one human and one person. But God reveals himself in this way, that he is three in one. So we don't just study generically God. We study God in Trinity, we study him in personality, we study him in essence that is shared by all three. But God is revealed as the Father, a distinct person. He's revealed as the Son, also a distinct person. And he is revealed as the Holy Spirit, also a distinct person. Each one of these persons can be personally known. So oftentimes I hear believers, they only talk to the Father. They would never talk, they would never even think of talking to the one that died on the cross for them. How are you to come to know the one who is from the beginning if you don't talk to him? So Jesus himself says, we'll look at that passage, Ask me anything in my name. Ask me anything in my name. He goes on to say, if you ask the Father anything in my name. So what's the difference here? Jesus is teaching that we don't have to go through Him to speak to the Father. The Father Himself loves us and we are able to speak to Him. But that does not mean we do not speak to Jesus Christ. So we'll study these concepts and see how it is that we would Talk to each one of these persons of the Trinity. Okay? How would we talk to the Holy Spirit? Why would we talk to him? What would we talk to him about? So this study of theology and basics, we're not going to just cover Trinity personality in essence. We're going to cover those, but we're also going to be a fa- going to be doing a foundational study of each person of the Trinity. So we will study God the Father. We will study God the, the Son and God the Holy Spirit on a basic level, okay, that we can build on. We will find scriptures, we will look at scriptures to teach us about these three persons of the Trinity and help us to come to know each one of them. Lesson five will be anthropology, homardiology, and soteriology all together, okay? All three of those terms, anthropology. You've probably heard that term before, Anthropology but we're not studying it the way that man studies it, the way fallen man studies it. Anthropology is a study of man, but we're studying the creation of man by God, and we're studying the nature of man, according to the Bible, and we're studying the fallen nature. We're studying the fallen position in Adam. That is going to prepare us then, in the same hour, to look at homardiology, which is the study of sin. So we're going to find out how that position in Adam is affecting our relationship with God. Okay? We're going to study the contrast between that position in Adam and the position in Christ then in soteriology so that we can understand that the bigger aspect here, we, we know that our sins are forgiven for his namesake, but there's something a lot bigger than that. I was in Adam. I was dead in Adam. Now I'm alive in Christ. That means there's a bigger issue than just the symptom of my personal sins, the sins I commit. That means there an a state of Adam that I was taken from, I was saved out of. And that's the bigger issue that we need to study beyond the symptom of the disease, the personal sins that we commit. So the end of that study is soteriology, the study of salvation, the study of how it is that we receive eternal life how it is that we get a position in Christ that we are taken from the position of Adam the estate of Adam into the estate of Christ the from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved son we're going to study the new nature in contrast to the old man the old nature that is still in us and how those two wrestle and who it is that actually should be wrestling in us is it us do we wrestle with the flesh or is there something else that lives inside us that wrestles with the that wrestles with the flesh for us, and we submit to that other thing inside us? So we're going to see that part of uh, part of that uh, knowledge of the new nature um, is also going to be a study of the sealing, the down payment that we receive as part of that position in Christ part of uh, the down payment that we receive in eternal life that helps us um, wrestle with the flesh, that actually can have victory over the flesh within us. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Mm -hmm. The Holy Spirit. (laughs) All right. Very important. Two very important things at the end of that. The terms and contents of salvation. Salvation because this is a hotly debated topic, has been for 2,000 years, particularly it has been for the last 30 or 40 years with Zane Hodges and all kinds of folks who want to argue about what do you need to know in order to receive eternal life. So we need, the, um, we need to talk about the terms, what is it that on our part needs to happen in order to receive eternal life, and what are the contents of saving faith. What are the things that we need to know or understand in order to be able to do that part, which is ours, to trust in the person of Jesus Christ, to believe in Jesus Christ? And lastly, we need to study eternal life, that's, and that's part and parcel of eternal security. Okay? How long is eternal life? It's forever. It's eternal, right? So how long is our security? Forever, yes. But we'll get in more into that. Lesson six will cover something called peripatology. That's the way I'm, I'm going to translate that is the Christian life. Okay? Uh, peripatology is, is a walking word. Okay? But a walking, this walking word in the Bible is used to describe living, behaving, how we get along in this world. So peripatology is the study of how we live the Christian life. So we'll look at positional truth again. We'll refresh our memories on this a week later after we've studied it in soteriology. We'll look at positional truth again because that's foundational because we're going to live the Christian life from where we are in Christ. Because if we don't have that on our thinking, we're going to get messed up from the beginning and start trying to live the Christian life in our own strength rather than knowing we're already there, like Gene said this morning. How do you know that you're going to heaven? Because I'm already there. That's the answer. So how do you live the Christian life? To try to get into heaven or because you're already there? We'll look at positional truth. We'll look at fellowship. That means three particular things to me. The sphere, the means, and the standard. Okay, Where we walk, the sphere. The means with which we walk. Anybody that's been in the Galatians class knows the means by which we walk the Holy Spirit and the standard that we walk so the sphere that I walk all of us have kind of all of us have this information already we're supposed to walk in the light as he is in the light we're supposed to walk in love okay so where are we walking the sphere in which we walk okay What means do we walk in that sphere? What means do we walk? um, What strength do we walk in? By the Holy Spirit. By means of the Holy Spirit. We are choosing to follow the Holy Spirit, but we're also being led by the Holy Spirit at the same time, active and passive. And then the standard. We're going to look at Galatians chapter 5 when we do this and see that at verse 16 and verse 25, there's two things and verse 18, I guess, Um, the um, walk by means of and being led by. But then at the end of that section, we're going to look at, at, at a word that means walk according to the standard. Those who have your eternal life by the Spirit should walk according to the standard of the Holy Spirit. What is the standard that is being spoken of there? And then finally, the most important part, I think, It's going to bring all of that together for the Christian life. Um, We're going to look at several topics, but this one sandwiched in the middle. What is one of the most important things in the Christian life? (laughs) Do I need a better illustration like I give the CEF students, the Good News Club students? Yes. Yes. When we used to get ready to pray, we'd say, Okay, we're going to pray now. Everybody, we're going to pray. And we'd all do this to get ready to pray. I've talked before, and Bob's stolen it from me, and I'm okay with that, about not having half a conversation with God. Because we get involved in the Bible, and we need to, but we forget that's only God talking to us. We need to talk to Him as well. Okay? So the whole conversation is, This is God talking to me, and prayer is me talking to God. Okay? So prayer is an extremely important part of the Christian life. This is also an extremely important part of a solid marriage. And this is something that I've learned the fullness of recently with Stephanie. Um, is that we had a lot of difficulty in getting into a routine. Her work schedule and, and many things. We had a difficulty getting into a routine, but I was teaching it to everybody that I could every couple that I could. You need to do this daily together. You need to be praying together and reading the word together. Okay? Because you are not one person anymore. You are not an individual. You are part. You are part of something. So that your Christian life is bound to somebody else. So when you go and study the Bible for yourself, this is different for pastors and you and I know this, we have to study to teach others, but that's a little different but in living our own christian lives we've got a partner and if we're not walking with them in these things then either they're dragging behind or languishing not living not able to live the christian life at all or they're living they're living their zoe life separate from their husband They're learning from the Bible on their own as you were learning from the Bible on your own, and you have separated your spiritual lives. That is not a strong marriage. A marriage is God bringing two and making them one flesh and making now you one spirit. So the husband leads the wife by saying, Okay, honey, we've finished dinner. Let's open our Bibles and read a little bit. Let's pray. The husband leads by saying, Okay, honey, let's get up a little bit early in the morning and we'll spend 15 minutes in the Word of God and we'll fellowship over it and we'll pray together before we start our day. Okay? This is where the foundation of a strong marriage comes from. This is that third strand that Ecclesiastes speaks of. Okay? The third strand that binds two together becomes a third strand around the other two so they're not easily broken. Okay? Jesus Christ, the Word of God, living and written is that third strand and if you are not as husbands binding that third strand around your marriage then you are easily broken in your marriage okay so following that we'll do a study of thalamatology, which is a study of the will of god Um, it's a question that was brought up this morning how do we know the will of god how do we know what god wants us to do with our lives well, the foundation of that study has to be what has God already told us his will is. Okay? Things like rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you. But the bigger question that somebody is really asking is, what's my spiritual gift? What does God want me to do? Where does he want me to live? Where does he want me to go to church? What pastor has he placed me under for my spiritual care? How do we determine the will of God for specific things? So we'll talk about that. We'll talk about agonology, which is a study of Christian suffering. Okay? Um, this is extremely important for a new believer to be grounded in, so they don't think that because they, be- they become a Christian that all their problems are done. Jesus fixes everything. We no longer have any problems. We have great marriages. We have great jobs. We never argue with our bosses or our spouses or our family or anything. We never have any money problems um, that... Uh, uh, the sky rains Skittles, and the world is made of marshmallows, and nobody ever dies. That's, uh, that's not the reality. We do struggle. We do agonize. We do have suffering in the Christian life. But how is it that we face those things? same way that we face everything else. By means of the Holy Spirit, walking according to the standard of the Holy Spirit, and walking in the sphere of light with He who is in the light. And the last part of that study will be the life, and I'm sorry, the love and life of Christ and the life of the believer. One of the most powerful verses in regard to that is Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Now, I think that ought to be one of the first verses that any believer memorizes because then they're going to see from the beginning Christ has to be alive. He has to be living his life in me for me to get it, for me to succeed, for me to glorify him. It's no longer me. I can't do it in my strength. I I shouldn't do it in my strength. I shouldn't even try. But if I want the righteousness of Christ to be manifested in me, to be a sweet-smelling savor... It's got to be Christ living in me. All right. Lesson seven will be Boulology, which is the plan of God, a study of the plan of God. This is an abbreviated look at what is in the plan of God reader. Um, but it is important for new believers to be grounded in this, to know what God is doing. Okay? To know what God is doing, what's the big picture of what God is doing. Did God just do all of this so he could get people saved? Or is there something so much bigger than that that God has in mind? And that is just a small part of what he's doing. How does, he, how does he lay out the plan for us? How does he teach us the plan? And how is he proceeding at putting the plan together? What are the steps that we've already seen? What are the steps to come? Okay? And why is that important for us to live our Christian lives? Because he, Jesus, says he no longer calls us slaves, but he calls us friends. This is what he says to the apostles. And because you are friends, I'll tell you what I'm doing. I'll tell you everything that I'm doing. And everything that Jesus is doing was told to him by the Father, because that's what the Father is doing. Okay? So the plan of God is important for believers to understand so that we can be actively a part of the plan. Okay? If we know what God is doing, then we can follow after and do likewise. Okay? Lesson 8 will be Ecclesiology, which is a study of the church. We're going to look at the new creation, okay? Because the church is something entirely new in God's plan. The church is not Israel. The church is not Jews and Gentiles, okay? Jews and Gentiles are brought together into the church, into a new creation. But the church is an entirely new creation. So it is distinct from Israel. And if we get that, understanding out of the way immediately then we'll save ourselves a lot of confusion okay because in our hermeneutics when we're looking at passages that are addressing israel then we'll understand that's not directly about me okay there may be a principle i can apply here that pleases god but it's not directed toward me but this passage over here talks about the church So this passage I need to pay attention to as well because this is directly for me and I need to understand what God has for me here. So a contrast with Israel and the church is very important as a foundation that we not get confused in the scriptures and in our lives because we have misapplied passages um, that aren't directly for us. They're for our Edification, therefore, our encouragement, but they are not for our application directly because they are not to us. We'll study a distinction between the universal church and the local church. Okay? The local church is, is the body that meets here in Austin, Texas in this building. Okay? The universal church is every believer who's ever lived. Okay? That's the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. Every believer that's ever lived, that's the universal church. The majority of which we'll find is not on earth anymore. They're already in heaven. Okay. We'll study the function of the local church. This is extremely important, and, and James, we talked about this this afternoon. We looked at Ephesians chapter 4. What's the function of a local church? The equipping of the saints for the work of service. This is not a place for us to come and have fun and games and entertainment. This is not a place you don't decide which church you go to because of who's got the best child care or who has a bowling alley. You decide where you're going to church Because God has convicted you, this is the pastor that I've been assigned to. But then why are you going to that church as well? So that you can be equipped for the works of service. The local church is the seminary in the Bible. The seminary is not a separate institution outside of the local church. The equipping of the saints happens in the local church by gifted pastor teachers and evangelists in this part of the church age. So everybody, every believer in Jesus Christ, ought to be in seminary. Because every believer in Jesus Christ has a spiritual gift that needs to be trained. The leadership structure of the local church, the difference between spiritual gifts, between offices, and between maturity status. Okay, What are the differences between those? What, uh, what has God given us in the scriptures to tell us how the... Uh, leadership of the local church is uh, accomplished. Um, we'll talk about things like overseers and angels and elders and how all of those fit together, How what the Scripture teaches as far as that's concerned. And we'll talk about deacons as well, what deacons uh, are for, where, uh, uh, where they came from, where they started in the Scriptures, and what they have morphed into and um, make a distinction between practices. Um, 21st century practices, and um, the uh, description of such things in the, the uh, scriptures. Finally, we'll study charismatology, and that means spiritual gifts. We'll study the nature, the need, and the purpose of spiritual gifts. Okay? Now, in this study, we're going to find out, as we've already said, equipping of the saints for the work of service, there isn't just one spiritual gift, just pastor's. That's the only person that has a spiritual gift. Everybody else, sorry. You're out of luck. There are are many spiritual gifts that are still in use today. What we call uh, permanent uh, ecclesiastical gifts. It means permanent church age gifts. Um, That every believer receives at least one of these gifts. And those gifts are received not so they can be awesome and boast about how cool they are. They have this particular spiritual gift. But Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, they are to be used in service to the body. So you get your equipping where? In the local church. And they're to be used for service in the local church. Okay. We'll uh, look at spiritual gifts in the church age, which is going to include the cessation of particular gifts. There are other gifts in the New Testament that are spoken of that are no longer in use. Okay? They have ceased cessation of spiritual gifts those gifts have ceased because there's no longer a need from them for them and we'll talk about that biblical concept we'll see why those gifts are no longer in use why they are no longer needed um, we'll talk about the perma- the function of permanent gifts and the recognizing of spiritual gifts now i just i discussed a few minutes ago philamatology about de- determining god's will do you think those concepts are going to be helpful in determining what your spiritual gift is Yes, it's still determining the will of God. But this will be the last thing we look at is recognizing your spiritual gift. With all of these things, all of us ought to be equipped to move forward in the Christian life. We've built the foundation, okay? And throughout our Christian lives, we're going to check that foundation, okay? Just like the foundation of a house. Eventually, if we don't care for that foundation, we start to see cracks. We start to have infestation of bugs like termites, and the foundation can fall apart, Okay? So it's the same with the Christian life. Every believer has to go back, needs to go back and review these things and care for the foundation that they've built. Okay? Any questions? All right, let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for this study. And Father, we pray that uh, your hand of blessing would be upon it, that your Holy Spirit would be at work to... uh, Be sure that the students of this class, the students of all nine uh, lessons in this series, uh, will benefit from this. For Father, uh, I'm only a uh, mouthpiece up here. I'm only the deliverer of uh, the message that you have. But uh, the Spirit is the one that uh, delineates this message, the one that explains this message to to each believer and helps uh, each one of us to understand it and apply it. So, Father, I pray that uh, you would be at work in each one of us to do that which is pleasing in your sight, to glorify your Son, to teach all of us um, how it is that, that you would have us walk and please you. Father, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.